Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by HelloFresh. Help support this program and keep our digital campfire burning all night long by visiting HelloFresh.com forward slash told30, where you, as one of my listeners, can enter promo code TOLD30 when signing up to get $30 off your first week. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. I'm your host, Otis Gyre. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four terrifying tales for you about inhuman entities, dangerous games, and secrets best left hidden. So lock your doors, turn the lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first story this evening is by author John Casuccio, entitled The Hand of the Loa. Dead grass and tall weeds crunched under his leather shoes on the way home from the schoolhouse. 
A leather book strap dug into his shoulder and held the weight of his books high on his back while afternoon sun baked his skin under a long-sleeved uniform. He couldn't remember the last time it rained, but when they needed it, there was usually just enough to keep crops sickly but alive and food on the table. The small farming community had banded together to survive the drought years ago and held strong until their own sickness came. It had been almost a year since his mother became the last person to die, and things were only now getting back to normal. Life is only as hard as the good times you've lost, and Michael hadn't known many. He learned to find his happiness in the small things. He couldn't stop the smile that prodded the corner of his mouth since about noon today when he sat outside under the oak tree talking and planning with his friend. His thoughts were focused on the small adventure they planned for tonight. The books grew heavier as the neighbors' houses came into view, four in total on his road, standing in large staggered lots on each side. His house was the farthest away. Michael's eyes shifted to the ground and watched the toes of his shoes as they swung in and out of sight. Eyes up, boy. Watch where you're going, his dad always said. But the walk was always easier when he couldn't see how much walking was left to do. Michael's father was a carpenter and also tended to the farming equipment. He had a workshop on their land not far from the house. He was a warm man with hands made thick and heavy the way old worn tools turn into steel. Michael worked hard in school to make his dad proud, but never thought he'd grow up to be as impressive as the old man. His shoes swung from brown grass to hard-cracked road dirt, and he knew he was almost there. "'How's your day, Mikey?' He unslung the bookstrap and set the load on a tool bench. Ever since his mom had passed on, his dad liked it when he stopped by the shop after school. It had become part of the routine before disappearing into the house for his evening studies. "'Randy said his house is haunted. He heard footsteps on the roof,' the words flew out. Michael's dad paused from his work and pushed the back of his wrist across his wet forehead. Randy has possums in his attic. I've been trying to get his pop to let me fix that roof for years, his dad said dryly. You tell Randy to tell his dad I'll get rid of those ghosts for him as soon as he changes his mind, and as if to acknowledge the gleam in his son's eye, you two stay away from there. Those things isn't safe. Liable to get the uh, if you start poking around. Randy was Michael's best friend and lived in the house next down on the same side of the road. It was a ways off, but he could see it well enough from his bedroom window that sometimes they'd flash messages back and forth after dark with lanterns, just like the old-timers used to do. Today at school, Randy said he'd flash three long times if he heard anything on the roof tonight. Michael would flash back three times if he could see something up there, twice if not. He couldn't wait for it to get dark, but knew his dad would call him foolish. He only shared the beginning of his story because he was too excited to hold the entire thing in. The rest of their plans were best kept secret. They talked a while longer about less fantastic things before Michael made the last leg of his hike home. He kicked his shoes off on the front porch, ran through the great room, climbed the stairs, and trekked down the hallway to his bedroom. The sun fell behind a wall of trees, and soon the moon lit up the clearing of homes. Michael dragged his desk chair over to the window and put his unlit lantern on the floor beside him. Just as he was wondering if Randy had fallen asleep, the signal came. 
flash, flash, flash. He searched intently from the window. Nothing. He turned for his matches when the movement caught his attention. A figure stood up on the roof and looked out over the road. He must have missed it climbing up in the dark, but it was there, standing silhouetted by the moonlight. He panicked and pressed his palms against the cold glass, his eyes fixed. The figure was tall, willowy, and somewhat unnatural, as if a strong wind might be able to take it away. It began moving across the roof with a slow, limping gait. Michael tried to swallow, but only made a dry click. Flash, flash, flash. Michael's trance broke. He grabbed for the matches, then lantern, missing it the first time because his eyes didn't want to listen to him and look away from the window. He struck the match and lit the wick. Looking out the window, blinded to the dark by the lantern's light, he held it at arm's length with a book in his other hand to create the signal. Flash, flash, flash. Michael blew out the flame and stared from the window, his night vision slowly returning. The figure was gone. He blinked hard and kept searching, trying to get rid of the spots. His vision cleared. Standing at the other end of the roof, directly over Randy's window, was the tall, willowy figure, staring back at him with a dim yellow glow where its face should be. Its attention was firmly locked, and Michael was paralyzed with fear. Flash, flash, flash went the face. His limbs went numb. He staggered backwards, twisting himself away from the window and losing his balance. He slipped over in a heap on the hard floor. Michael turned back to the window, eyes wide and unblinking. The curtains hung limp, framing a view of nothing but clear night sky. Scrambling across the floor, staying low enough that he wouldn't see Randy's house again, he pulled the curtains closed. He ran through the dark to his bed and pulled the blankets up. For hours he waited and stared at the night glow around the curtains. Soon his fear was eased by the rising sun. Sleep took over and comforted him through the early hours of the morning. Voices from downstairs carried him back into the world. They rarely had visitors this early in the morning and never so many at one time. How long had he slept? He tried to piece together everything that happened the night before. If it hadn't been for the curtains, the lantern laying on its side and the shadow of a bruise on his knee, he might have been happy believing he imagined the whole thing. Did I? The talking stopped as Michael entered the room. Several of their neighbors were there, five in all. Both of Randy's parents were pale and looked to be the center of conversation. Mikey, good morning. Randy's dad spoke through a pained smile. His mom stared intently at nothing, her eyes red and swollen. Michael's dad stood, motioned him to come, and clasped a heavy hand on his shoulder. Randy's not doing so well. His folks say he's pretty ill, so he won't be at school today. No visitors. Understand? Fear gripped him like a vice. He could only nod in reply. He wanted to tell them what he had seen last night. He wanted to take them upstairs and point out his window and show them the thing he saw on the roof over his friend's bedroom. But what could he say that they'd believe? He was struggling just to convince himself. The school day came and went, and soon Michael was walking home again. This morning, he kept his head down as he passed his friend's house, afraid he might find proof of what he saw the night before. But now, after building up his courage all day, he couldn't help himself. Randy's house came into view. The roof, or what he could see of it, was empty. There was nothing out of the ordinary at all. He didn't know what he expected, but he expected something. 
some kind of evidence that there was a man there the night before. He needed to talk with Randy about what had happened, but more than that, he needed to know his friend was going to be okay. Michael looked up and down the road for anyone who could be watching, then sneaked around the side of the house. Tuck. The small stone bounced off the second floor window. Tuck, tink. He felt the grass and dirt for another one and looked up only to be surprised by the white face of Randy's mother staring down at him from the blackness of the window. Michael felt his cheeks flush with shame and waited for her confusion to turn into anger. She only stared at him, eyes full of the same pain and sadness he saw that morning, and drew the curtains closed. He made his way home, slipping past the workshop, and went straight to his room. Somehow, his dad always knew when he'd been doing things he was told not to do, and he didn't want to test his luck so soon after the offense. Dinner was quiet. It hadn't been like this since his mother left them. Back then, Michael didn't know if his dad was ever going to speak again. She'd gotten sick one night, and Michael was kept away from her over his father's fears of contagion. A couple days later, his father broke the news. They were the last words spoken between them for almost a week. He sat at the table with his dad and sank deeper into fear with each silent second. How bad is it, Dad? Is Randy going to be okay? I know I did it. I can help. But he said nothing. After dinner, Michael went to his room and pulled his desk chair to the unlit square on the floor in front of his window. The clouds melted from orange to pink to blue, and soon the world was a black cutout against the night sky. And Michael watched. Hours passed. His head was down, and his eyes had closed. He stirred awake, and the sound of Randy's voice echoed the silence in his ears. What had he been dreaming? It was already lost from his mind. Flash, flash, flash. The light from Randy's room made Michael leap from his chair toward the window. Flash, flash, flash. His excitement gave way to doubt and doubt to confusion. Michael scanned the horizon of his friend's roof and saw nothing. No one was there. Was he just signaling that he was okay? He searched for his matches and broke the first one in his excitement. The second lit through, and the moment later, he was furiously signaling his reply. Flash, flash. Holding his breath, only darkness answered. Flash, flash. He signaled to Randy again, this time slower, and waited. The reply finally came. Flash, flash, flash. But Randy's room stayed dark this time. The flashing was lower, from outside the house, from where he stood earlier throwing rocks at his friend's window. Flash, flash, flash. It was closer now, in the field almost halfway between their houses. The light flashed three more times, moving closer with each signal. Goose flesh covered his body and his lungs seized. What appeared to be only one dim yellow light flashing in the distance were now two distinct orbs only inches apart. They were eyes. Three more flashes came, this time from his own yard. Three more flashes followed seconds later, peering up at his second-floor window from the pitch only a few feet away from the house. Michael ran from the window and hid on the floor beside his bed, pulling the covers down over him. The only sound was his heartbeat deafening inside his head, and he begged for it to stop so he could hear if the thing was coming. Thump! His attention shot upward to the ceiling. It started as a soft shuffling, and then it began scraping. The footsteps were clear but sounded wrong. One moment, he was sure he heard more than one pair of feet moving, 
The next, it sounded like there were no feet at all, only a dragging sound moving from one side of the roof to the other. Everything stopped. The noises were gone, and Michael willed himself to breathe again. For the first time, he realized he was sitting in a puddle on the floor and didn't know if he would be strong enough to stand. He fought to his feet. He ran to the bedroom door. He needed his father. Flash, flash, flash. His shadow burned into the door in front of him three times. Michael trembled and fell against it. His legs failed him, and as his hip struck the door, he let out a cry. It was meant to be a scream for help or mercy, but neither would come. It was there, upside down on the outside of the house, watching. The creature descended and barely made a sound as it fell into the room, not caring enough to acknowledge the existence of the closed window that Michael prayed would protect him. Invisible in the darkness under the sill and before the moonlight on his floor, it was there. Its hands reached forward from the black crossing into the light, propelled towards him by what looked like endless spindle-fed arms. The monster's fingers, long and blunt at the tips, with earth ground deep underneath splintered nails, scraped across his skin and anchored into him with inhuman strength. The arms retracted, pulling him across the floor towards the abyss they reached from. As he entered the light of a window, a face formed at the opposite end, stretching out to him without its body. Broken and bent, its mouth was twisted into a soundless scream of terror. One eye fixed directly on him, the other rolled away in its socket. Flash, flash, flash. The next morning, Michael's father sat in the kitchen of Randy's house, his eyes vacant and cheeks wet. The six of them all gathered together again. Randy's parents tried to comfort him, but they knew there was nothing that could be said. They had two bodies to bury next to the others now, and no idea if these would be the last before it left them alone again. Each of them secretly prayed it would take them to the next so the guilt, terror, and lies would be over. They all knew their debt was coming, but none of them had any idea of the horror that would be sent to collect it. They had agreed to such a high price, but they were helpless to stop it now. What good were crops if there would be so few people to live off of them? The deal had been made, however, and those who made it remained unharmed. They were promised long and healthy lives, and each would curse the reward of increasing abundance for many years to come with broken hearts and empty homes. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Our second story tonight is by an anonymous author, identifying himself only as Jack, and is presented to you today as originally posted through the mysterious 4chan paranormal form X, and is entitled The Cell Phone Game. This purportedly true tale will be followed by its sequel of sorts, so stay tuned afterward to hear its thrilling conclusion. Without further ado, I give you The Cell Phone Game. Howdy. You can call me Jack. It's not my real name, but that's what I'll go by for now. I reckon the time to tell my story has come. Believe it or don't, but here it is. I suggest you take away the lessons it teaches, even if you dismiss it all as BS, like 98% of the other stories on the Internet. There's more truth in this story than any one of you could know. Now, I've been out of high school for three years, but that's when this particular event takes place, so I'm going to have to wind my clock back a little here to tell the story. Originally, for my first two and a half years of school, I attended a school in the deep southern part of America, close to the Gulf. We had all kind of ghost stories growing up, and if there was one lesson our super conservative parents taught us, was this. Don't go fooling around in things you don't understand. Now, I was really unpopular at my high school in the South. My first two years of high school were a real pain because I was a big dork, and everyone made fun of me. I was a loner, and all I really did in class was play my Game Boy all day before rushing home to play an MMO I was addicted to. All of that changed during my junior year when my mother's job moved us out west. I started to attend a little Catholic high school with no more than around 250 students. It was at this time that I finally started to fit in and make friends. No one out there knew how much of a dork I was, so I opted to hide my power level, as they tend to say on A, and try to make friends for once in my life. Who knows? Maybe I could even get a cute girlfriend if I was careful. I started to meet people at the school. At a school that small, you end up knowing everyone in your class. My first day, I made a new friend named Sam, and at lunch, I opted to sit with him and his friends. He told me all about the other kids at the school, who was most popular, who the jocks were, so on and so forth. He introduced me to his friends, too. Jim, a big jovial fellow who tipped the scales at 300 pounds. Vogelman, our... Table's resident computer nerd and hacker, and Thomas, a musician who played electric guitar. I also met Stephanie, the school's resident spunky Asian girl. Some of the guys said she could be a bitch, but she seemed cool enough. She was into gaming and never messed with any of us. She even seemed to think I was funny, so maybe that's why she started to call me at home after school on some days. Sam told me all kinds of stories about her, like how she used to make snacks for guys at the school, but then sprinkle Viagra all over them or pour laxatives into them so that anyone who ate them would suffer the brunt of her painful and arguably cruel joke. I just chuckled to myself and politely refused whenever she offered me anything. Then, it was Rottenbacher. His real name was Jason, but everyone just called him Rottenbacher or the Kraut. "'because he was a hardcore Nazi. 
He was an outcast and a loner. No one wanted to be associated with him. Every day he'd wear a red swastika armband to school just beneath his jacket, where the teachers couldn't see. But whenever he'd get hot and slip it off, or whatever he was changing, in the locker room, he'd be wearing the Nazi armband. Furthermore, on Halloween and on school costume event days, when he knew he could get away with it, Rottenberger always wore an entire replica of an SS uniform like the Gestapo wear, and with a black hat and the long boots. He was a mean and angsty son of a bitch. Whenever anyone told a teacher about him or asked him about the Nazi stuff, he'd shout racial or ethnic slurs at him, cuss them out, and yell Hal Hitler. Furthermore, one peculiar thing that caught my eye was that I couldn't help but notice that Rottenbacher always walked with a slight limp like he was in pain. Sam told me that somebody once saw him tightening a carved salise in the locker room, like the one the Catholic priests wear to punish themselves for their sins. It was a Catholic school, so I, like most people, just assumed at the time that maybe he just wore the salise because he was a devout Christian. It was kind of strange for a hardcore Hitler lover like Rottenbacher, but it was high school and none of us preferred to think too much about stuff like that. After he got done introducing me to everyone, Sam told me some of the school's old stories, including an urban legend that circulated about Kaylee, a girl that died mysteriously after playing some sort of cell phone game. Sure enough, he could point out the girl in the yearbook to me, and everyone recalled that the police had declared her missing under mysterious circumstances. She was presumed dead almost immediately thereafter. If you asked anyone exactly what happened, no one could tell you a damn thing. They always just said it was because she played the cell phone game. Sam, Stephanie, the cute, mischievous Asian, Rottenbacher, the self-torturing Nazi, and the cell phone game. The police's investigation of a teen's disappearance. All of these people and events were about to come together to drag me into something in which I wanted no part. It wouldn't even be until over two years later that I finally understood how and why everything went down just the way it did. Anyway, the last half of junior year came and went, and the long summer passed us all by, and what seemed like a heartbeat, it was finally time to begin our last year of high school. Everyone was back for the new school year, pumped to start the laziness and most fun year of our high school lives. Even Rottenbacher, still limping around the school in that barbed salise, still sprouting his Nazi garbage every time someone decided to mess with him. The year started out eerily quiet. Word was that two more cell phone game-related disappearances had happened over the summer to one boy and one girl from another high school, and that the police were investigating a possible serial killer. According to the paper, the only common link the police had found was that every person who disappeared had received a text message that read, Welcome to the game. None of the text messages had been sent from the same cell phone, so this evidence had been dismissed as circumstantial. For me, things weren't half bad. It was this year when I finally started to open up more as a person. I made a good circle of friends who I trusted, and I felt more calm about being myself at this point. Gradually, I started to fit in more and more, and pretty soon, I was pretty popular in certain circles. 
Stephanie liked to hang around with me more and more because of how funny she thought my jokes were. Before long, one day, which I still remember as the happiest day of my life, she came to me in the middle of campus after school and looked up at me with his beautiful Asian eyes and that long black hair and a smile to die for. And she asked me right then, Jack, will you go out with me? I laughed, ran, and jumped for joy. Of course I will, I said, and danced around with her there in front of everyone. I finally had a girlfriend. I still remember that as one of the happiest days of my entire life, if not the happiest. We went out on dates, we hung out after school, and she even started to eat lunch with Sam, Jim, Vogelman, and I every day. Maybe I wouldn't have been so happy had I known what was going to happen next. It was one day at lunch, when she was sitting with us, when she mentioned that while sleeping over at her friends one night, they had stayed up late with some girls from another high school talking about the cell phone game. She said that these girls knew all about the rules of the game and that they had explained it to her all in great detail. Supposedly, you can join the game at any time by sending a text message at midnight to the right phone number. The text message was supposed to say... I wish for the power to curse. If you did it right, you'd get a message in return that said, Welcome to the game. And supposedly this was the reason they had given for why the police found the message on the phones of everyone that had disappeared. Stephanie went on to talk about the game. We all listened attentively to what she was saying. She told us that once someone was in the game, they were in danger. Within two weeks, they had to complete one of a number of different tasks, or else they would be dragged away in the night. I stopped her right there. Dragged away? By what? To where? She got silent for a moment. I don't know. She whispered before continuing her story. She said that in order to protect oneself from being dragged away, you could do one of two things. The first was to find a special protective item, The item could be anything. You never knew what it was going to be, but it seemed that whatever the item was, it would make the bearer suffer in some way. This was considered a small price to pay in return for protection for as long as you wore the item. The second way was to bring someone else into the game. This could be done by sending the text message, Welcome to the Game, to someone else's number. If someone received the text message from someone else who was in the game, then that meant that this person was now in the game too, and subject to all of the same rules and consequences of the game. If the person didn't find a protective item themselves, or bring another person into the game, then they too would be dragged away. The catch about the second was this. While the protective item if found could protect you indefinitely, so long as you kept it with you, bringing someone else into the game would only buy you a temporary grace period. The first time you brought someone into the game, you'd get a two-week extension. Then only one week. Eventually, the grace period would get shorter and shorter, until you barely bought yourself any time at all by bringing someone else into the game. By that time, you needed to have found your protective item. Even though I've always been something of an X-file, I didn't like hearing her talk about this stuff, so I told her it was a bunch of nonsense. You really think so? She asked. If it's true, it would explain what the police found. And imagine how cool that would be to be able to curse anyone who messed with you 
by bringing them into the game. You could get rid of anyone and no one would ever know. There was an edge in her voice I'd never heard before from Stephanie. She almost sounded intoxicated at the thought of it. Truth be told, it scared me a little. Don't go talking like that, I told her. Stuff like that's beyond people like you and me. We shouldn't go messing with stuff like that. What if you got involved in it and then all of it turned out to be true? What would I do if something happened to you? Promise me you won't be going messing around with that stuff. She gave me a funny look. Never thought you would be the kind of person to be scared of silly things like this, Jack. Well, I don't think it's right to mess around in stuff you don't understand, you know? I gave her a concerned look. Now promise me, Steph, please. Promise you won't go try it. She sighed in annoyance. Fine, fine. I won't play the scary cell phone game. Are you happy now? I told her I was, but the truth be told, I was scared. I didn't believe her. And all the time I'd known her, I'd never seen her betray anyone or sleep around or anything. But she had always been a trickster and a liar, and would lie to anyone about anything if it got her ahead without hurting anyone else. But, to be honest, I always thought it was kind of cute, and just accepted it as one of her quirks. But this time it was serious. So a few days later, when she came back and told us she had joined the cell phone game, I was pissed. What are you thinking, Stephanie? You promised me you wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's not a big deal. I've already got it all planned out. Besides, if it's true and it works... It's too good of an opportunity to pass up. She held up her cell phone. <laughs> Look, she said giddily. Her text message was open on the screen which read, Welcome to the game. Kind of freaky, huh? I got it just after I sent the text at midnight, just like the girl said. My jaw dropped. I was speechless and scared stiff. This game couldn't be for real, could it? Stephanie, if this is real, then you're in danger now. You've only got two weeks to find the protective item. I know. That's why I sent the text to Rebecca. I'm going to find out if it's true or not. I hit the roof. You did what? But Stephanie, if this is real, then that makes you as good as a murderer. You cursed Rebecca, and now she could die because of you. Relax, Jack. I don't actually believe any of this stuff. But even if I did, Rebecca's always been a big-time bitch. It's not like she doesn't have it coming anyway. She giggled that same mischievous giggle of hers that I always loved. But this time I wasn't loving any part of it. A couple weeks passed and nothing happened, but then one day, Rebecca didn't show up at school. At lunchtime, Stephanie was sitting around with us as usual when the assistant principal came to talk to us with a megaphone. May I have your attention, please? Everyone got silent. The police have reported that one of your fellow students, Rebecca, has gone missing. Stephanie's golden skin turned white. She froze. Her parents are very worried about her. If any of you know anything about this, please come and talk with me after school. That is all. Stephanie, I whispered. I was very afraid for her. I was very afraid for what she might do. She looked at me and said, Don't say anything, just don't. She got up and bolted from the lunchroom. I chased after her. Stephanie, 
Stephanie, what are you doing? She kept on jogging away from me, her cell phone out. Don't try and stop me, Jack. If I'm going to survive, I'm going to need more time. I can get another week if I curse someone else, and that'll give me three weeks to find it. Stephanie, listen to yourself. Who are you going to curse? You'd kill someone else for a little extra time? Look what's happened to you. She was starting to cry. I know, damn it. But I know who I'm going to curse. No one's going to miss them, I promise. Stephanie, that's not right. You can't do it. No one deserves this. Let me help you. We can find a protective object for you together. She turned and showed me her cell phone. Her text outbox had a message which read, Welcome to the game. She had sent it to Rottenbacher. I started to weep. I grabbed onto her as tightly as I could. Stephanie! Stephanie, I love you. I'm so sorry. This isn't right. None of this is right. She held on to me and began to cry deeply as well. We held each other there for nearly an hour like that. I still remember it like it was yesterday. Then, that night before we went home, we both resolved we'd start looking for a protective item the next day. The next day, I was walking with Stephanie along the track after school when Rottenbacher approached us with his cell phone. He was furious. He held it up to her face. Is this your idea of a joke, you stupid slant-eyed bitch? Truth be told, I felt Rottenbacher had a right to be a little angry. Sure, he was a Nazi pervert freak, but with all of the whispers of murderer going around, I could imagine anyone being angry about getting a text like that. But even so, I wasn't about to let anyone talk to my girl that way. Hey, buddy, watch your mouth. It's no way to talk to a lady. Lady? Rottenbacher shouted. This slut's not a lady. She's just a bitch. And she tried to kill me. I bet you killed that other girl too, didn't you? Rebecca. She's missing because of you, isn't she? Stephanie began to cry again. I pulled my arm back and punched as hard as I could at Rottenbacher's face. He stumbled backward a few steps and grabbed his lip, from which trickled a little stream of blood, but he kept his composure. I halfway expected him to swing back at me, but he just stood there. After a moment, he spoke. You just don't get it, do you, Stephanie? I'm already in the game. I always have been. I know the damn score, but unlike you, I never cursed anyone else. P.S., I said. If all that's true, then how are you still... Suddenly, I remembered the Celise Rottenbacher wore around his leg that caused him to limp in agony in what Stephanie had told me at lunch. Whenever a new protective item was discovered, whatever it was, it would cause its bearer to suffer. You're a protective item. You have one. Stephanie's eyes lit up. It was clear that she had realized the same thing that I had. Rottenbacher smirked. That's right. So I just figured your girlfriend better know that she didn't get any additional time for trying to curse me. I've already been there and done that. Stephanie looked up at him with fear in her eyes. Days passed, and try as we might, Stephanie and I couldn't find anything that could qualify as a protective item. 
We were approaching the two-week deadline, and she was looking more and more scared by the day. Her hair was a mess, her usually bubbly personality was glum and distraught. She stared off into space during classes and prayed constantly. After the two-week deadline passed, we were both terrified. She came to me at school and said, Jack, I want you to sleep with me tonight. Stay with me all night. Don't let it get me. I couldn't refuse. I showed up at her house late that night and came in through her window. We slept together. It was bittersweet. She went to sleep holding me, but I lay awake most of the night watching and waiting until I finally fell asleep around 4.30 in the morning from sheer exhaustion. The next day, when I woke up, all I could think of was Stephanie. I looked around frantically. She wasn't in the bed next to me. "'Stephanie!' I said louder as I climbed out of bed and began to search for her. I walked into her kitchen. "'Don't be so loud,' a voice said. It was Stephanie's. I turned around to see her sitting at a round table in the kitchen. She was smiling and seemed as giddy as ever. I breathed a sigh of relief. My parents have already gone to work, but I don't want the neighbors to get suspicious and say something. I wept with relief. It was over and she was safe. Nothing had come for her. I ran across the kitchen floor and hugged her and kissed her all over. Everything was perfect. For two weeks. Then I came to school one day and nine of our classmates have disappeared, including Sam. Everyone was in an uproar. No one knew what had happened to them or where they had gone. No one except for me and the person who'd done it, Stephanie. And the amount of time extended was halved each time you brought someone new into the game. Then nine people would have brought her just over two weeks, which meant that her time would be running out again tonight. I confronted her about it after school. Stephanie, the police are getting suspicious. You can't do this anymore. And I can't watch you do this anymore. It's wrong. It's evil. She looked at me silently. I still remember the look in her eyes that day. At this point, it had become clear to me that the girl I had known and loved was long gone, and all that remained was a soulless, wicked shell which clung to life and feared death more than anything. But even so, I still loved her more than anything. She was my first and only girlfriend, and I couldn't let her go. I couldn't let anything happen to her. It's okay, she said. I won't do it anymore. I have accepted what I need to do. And I'm going to do it. No one else is going to die because of me. Stephanie, are are you sure? Maybe we can still find a protective item for you if we look now. She looked down sadly. There's no use in running from it now. I just want to spend the night with you tonight, okay? One more night together, that's all I want. I was heartbroken. Everything was too melancholic and too melodramatic. I was so sad at hearing her words at the thought of her being taken away. I threw up. I vomited and retched over and over again into a nearby garbage can trying to fight back an endless stream of tears. That night she slept with me again, sick, weak, and tired. I passed out from pure exhaustion at 3 a.m. Less than an hour later, though, I awoke with a start. Stephanie was gone. I sat up and looked around in terror, then found a note. I read it. Jack, 
I'm sorry for lying to you again, but I'm not ready to die yet. A chill went down my spine. I continued to read. I've figured out what I need to do. Don't worry, as promised. No one else is going to die because of me. What could she be thinking? I looked around my room. Suddenly, I noticed that the forty-five caliber pistol my father had bought me for my 18th birthday was missing from my room, and everything made perfect sense. That's why she had wanted to spend the night with me tonight. She wanted my gun. She was planning to go after Rottenbacher and take his protective item. As fast as I could, I threw on some clothes and bolted for my truck. I sped off towards Rottenbacher's apartment. When I got there, the lock had been shot off and there were voices inside. Push the door open. What's going on here, I demanded. I looked around. Stephanie was holding Rottenbacher at gunpoint with my forty-five. The apartment walls were covered in pictures of Adolf Hitler and swastika banners. There were whips and chains scattered around the bedroom floor. Rottenbacher was stomping around in long-sleeved pajamas and cursing at her in his typical neo-Nazi form, screaming at her about home invasion and calling the police and this and that. He was even wearing that stupid Nazi armband. It was obvious this guy was a lunatic fanatic. Stephanie screamed at him. Shut the hell up! Fired around at the wall behind him and winced. I remember my ears ringing from the loudness of the gunshot and a sharp pain in my inner ear, but I was too tense to worry about it at that moment. Now give me the barbed torture thing you're always wearing or I'll kill you right now! Her voice was all malice. Rottenbucker stood in place for a moment and slowly began to remove his pajama leggings. You're making a big mistake, he said. You should just accept the way things are and die with dignity. You're not going to get away with this. He removed the chalice from his leg, from which trickled a small amount of blood and handed it to her. Immediately, she slipped it onto her own leg with one hand, fumbling with my pistol, as she tightened it until it hurt, and her own leg began to bleed a little. Let's go, Jack. She whispered and turned to leave. I started to walk out with her from the apartment. I heard Rottenbacher shouting. You won't get away with this. He's going to come for you, and he's going to drag you off to hell for what you've done. You're going to pay for all those kids. I could see that she was sobbing a little as we walked away. I was sick. I was disgusted with everything. I was disgusted with Stephanie being so cruel and selfish. And I was disgusted for myself for seeing all of this and seeing the signs and not doing anything to stop it. But at least now it would be over. As we walked back to my truck, I said a small prayer for Rottenbacher in the hopes that he could find a new protective item within two weeks. He may have been a racist bastard, but in a way he was still better than Stephanie if what he had said about never cursing anyone else was true. He didn't deserve to die just for that. I drove Stephanie home. She was exhausted. I would have given her a kiss on the cheek, but I was too sick and just wanted the whole ordeal to be over. Good night, I whispered to her. Good night, Jack. I love you. She whispered back and climbed out of my truck and went back to her house. 
I started to drive home, exhausted from the day's events. Suddenly, my cell phone began to vibrate. I picked it up. It was a call from Stephanie. I answered, Hello? The first thing I heard was a shriek, followed by what sounded like the noise of pounding at her door. Jack, help! He's here! He's here! He's coming for me! What? Hold on, Steph. I pulled a U-turn in my truck and sped off back toward her home. Stephanie was becoming more frantic. Suddenly, on the other end of the line, I heard the sound of her door being bashed in, followed by another shriek. I could hear Stephanie screaming at the top of her lungs. A hideous, blood-curdling scream. I still remember every moment of it perfectly, and I remember her screams word for word. No! No! I don't want to die! Adrenaline surged through my heart and I floored the accelerator. No! 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 Stop! She screamed again, and I heard what sounded like the phone hitting the floor and Stephanie's screams getting further and further away. And then, dead air. Stephanie! Stephanie! Answer me, damn it! Getting no response, I hung up and called the police. When I arrived at Stephanie's house, the front door had been smashed in. I parked my car on her lawn and jumped out, carrying my forty-five caliber pistol with me. I ran inside, searching the halls. Everything was in slow motion. Then I came to Stephanie's bedroom. I turned on the light and checked all of the corners with my pistol leading the way. At length, I lowered the gun as something caught my eye in the center of the room. Stephanie's cell phone lay on the floor next to her bed. In the middle of the room, in the carpet, was a very small patch of blood. It wasn't more than a few drops, but the most chilling sight of all was that from the edge of her bed to the door of her room, which led out into the hall, was a trail of claw marks that she had left as someone or something had dragged her away to her doom. I couldn't take it anymore. I turned and left her room. On the way out, I couldn't help but notice that she had torn out most of her fingernails clawing at the carpet and that they lay scattered near the trails her fingers had left. I went out into the street and threw up again. I could hear the sirens coming in the distance. Days passed, then weeks, then months. The police did investigations. They questioned me time and time again. And every time my stories were all the same. I told them the truth as I knew it, as unbelievable as it was. I don't think they believed me, but all of the evidence supported my story, and there was nothing to implicate me in any of the crimes, so at length they finally let me go. Things gradually went back to normal. Our class eventually recovered from the losses of so many of our classmates, and over time my mind kind of accepted what had happened until it seemed like a distant dream. I graduated and moved on to college. But there was one thing that still bothered me through it all, and that was Rottenbacher. He'd been exactly right, even though Stephanie had taken his chalice. He never vanished in the way that she and the others did. But there is one thing that I do know, and that is, to this very day, if you ever see Rottenbacher, he's still always wearing that red Nazi swastika armband. Hey folks, if you're like me, you've got a busy life going on right now between prepping and narrating and all the other things I need to get done for the weekly podcast. 
spending a little extra time to make something to eat is a bit of a luxury. Well, now, that's one problem I don't have anymore thanks to the good folks at HelloFresh. Each week, they provide a 20-minute meal on the classic menu plan for when you really don't have any more time than that. There are three types of plans that you can choose from also, so everybody can cover whatever they like. You can either go with the classic, the veggie, or the family plan. Rediscover the excitement of cooking. Enjoy not having to plan dinner, spending money on takeout for an easy night, or worrying about uh, gathering ingredients week after week. Now, for me, the best part was having the ingredients conveniently shipped to my house, all ready to go. I'm a grilled cheese fan, and HelloFresh, they have a, a Zatar-crusted grilling cheese meal that it, it's simply awesome. And again, simple and easy to make with instructions all laid out so that even I can figure it out. And that's something. It makes something that tastes great. HelloFresh believes cooking should be simple and convenient, not a chore. Now, believe me, this is so simple. If I can do it, anyone can. The ingredients are high-quality, fresh, and just waiting to be put together for your enjoyment and satisfaction. Now, if you want a quality meal made at home without any hassles, I definitely encourage you to try HelloFresh. All the ingredients come pre-measured in handy-labeled meal kits, so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. Uh, you get some picture cards that show you everything you need to do. It's simple. There's just no problem at all. And I really, again, encourage you to try HelloFresh. There are many benefits of subscribing also, so you can keep enjoying HelloFresh week after week. Get out of the recipe rut and start cooking outside of your comfort zone by discovering new delicious recipes in each week's box. And here's the best part. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com forward slash TOLD30 and enter T-O-L-D-30. Again, for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com forward slash TOLD30 and enter TOLD30. You'll be happy you did. Thanks, HelloFresh. This episode's third story continues where our last story, The Cell Phone Game, leaves off. Also written by an anonymous author, it is entitled Alternate 21328. I'm going to tell you how such a universally reviled symbol as the Nazi swastika came to rule my life. For the sake of convenience, if my memoir is ever published, I request it be under the title Alternate 21328. In the now outdated Windows XP, this is the input that results in, you guessed it, the swastika. I recently became aware that a story told by an old acquaintance of mine, whose name is John, but who, for the sake of his own protection, identified himself as Jack, has for some time been circulating in certain corners of the Internet. John understood very little. I feel grossly misrepresented by his story, and so I've decided to contribute my own side of the events that led up to and followed the early months of 2007, when his story takes place. 
For those of you who may wonder why I would go to the effort to do something like this, I hope that the restoration of my reputation, at least in the eyes of some of you, will be as sufficient a reason as any I may give. As far as I've been able to discern, for as long as mail and telegrams and the like have been around, the game, as it has most often been referred to, has existed in some form or another. In old Europe, stories of Foxfire and Will-o'-the-Wisp may refer to the phenomenon surrounding it. Old stories like Carl Maria von Weber's opera Der Frischutz, and even modern media narratives like the movie Drag Me to Hell, or the Japanese animated series Jigoku Shuju, seem to be retellings or reimaginings of its ancient legend in its various forms around the world. For me, however, the game began early 2005, in the waning months of my sophomore year of high school. I was a lot like anyone else at the time, a young idealistic student with hopes and dreams and visions of a bright future. I could never have conceived at that time that my destiny would be redefined by a bunch of spoiled brats and their ill-advised curiosity for occult rituals. I was a good student. I'd even go so far as to say I was great. I got high marks and always did my homework. I was responsible. I never touched alcohol or cigarettes or drugs. I steered clear of the students who did. I always thought it would be enough to keep me out of trouble. But I was not so fortunate. It was Wednesday, April 20th, 2005. The irony, or perhaps the appropriateness of this date, may not be lost on those of you who know your history. A number of students from my school were having a party and smoking marijuana together to mark the date, which had been adopted by countercultural movements throughout America. I, of course, was not invited as I did not ever partake in such events, nor did I associate with those who did. Among those who were in attendance was a somewhat disagreeable girl named Kaylee Hernandez. Kaylee is still remembered fondly in decrepit MySpace memorials as a bright and cheerful and carefree girl who brightened people's day with a smile. All of that irritating nonsense that people make up about someone just because they died or disappeared in order to sound like a good person. But to me, she'll always be just the annoying shrew who ruined my life. I can only guess as to what exactly happened, but I'd imagine that at the party, under the influence of alcohol and marijuana, she and her friends got together late at night and decided to get together and look up spooky occult rituals on the internet. Whatever the cause, I was awakened by the vibration of my cell phone about 1 a.m. that night. I remember sleepily rolling over and flipping open the phone, its soft blue glow illuminating my room in the darkness. I had one text message from Kaylee Hernandez. Welcome to the game. At the time, I thought very little of it. I was tired and I figured it was just some sort of bizarre ritual drunken teenage girls undertook in the wee hours of the morning. I even deigned to wonder if it was some kind of roundabout way of saying she fancied me, although I had no interest in her or her ilk. I went back to sleep. 
The next day, things began to get strange. I dismissed it at the time as tricks of the light, but walking to school and all day in class, I felt as if I were being watched or followed. I would see the briefest glimpses of black shadows or glowing lights in the corner of my eye. Whenever I looked more closely, however, I found nothing. On top of that, my cell phone began acting up. I can't remember exactly what model it was, but it was a Motorola, and for the time, it was pretty good. I had a web browser, data plan, all the bells and whistles. I didn't receive any more text messages, but I started getting a lot of glitchy notifications and nonsense text. I also noticed I had a new app which I had no memory of installing. Between classes that day, I went to the bathroom to fiddle with it. Cell phones were, of course, confiscated on sight if the teacher caught you using them in class so I dared not fiddle with something seemingly so minute in the middle of English class. I checked out the new app, thinking it might be a virus that Kelly had attached to her text uh, the night before. I was taken to a browser menu with a list of four glowing blue hyperlinks. The text of the links were all nonsense, more indecipherable gibberish. I decided to follow the first one, my curiosity having been thoroughly piqued. I was immediately shown an elaborate map that looked like GPS. At the center, my position glowed in the school bathroom. A few other beacons glowed on the map, but I had no clues as to what they might be. The truth is, I was upset and worried that I had just accidentally purchased some sort of expensive GPS function for the phone, or worse, perhaps someone was tracking me now through the virus. I immediately turned off my phone and put it away, resolving to deal with it later. I wouldn't learn until later that this was a serious error. As school went on that day, my visions increased in frequency and intensity. I began experiencing auditory as well as visual hallucinations. The brief balls of light or shadow that had before vanished at my direct gaze now lingered long enough for me to look at them directly albeit only for an instant, before they disappeared. The sounds were like hissing, scratching, or perhaps static, or white noise. I began to feel physically ill and thought I might be getting sick, and decided to go home early. I started walking. It seems, however, that Kaylee and a couple of her friends took notice. She slipped out of class and confronted me on the way with two of her friends, Gabriella and Anastasia. Both of them were ugly, but I'll spare you the details. What's up, fag? she asked, as I was passing her. The weird sisters at her sides laughed mockingly, as if the pathetic attempt at cajoling me were somehow hilarious. I'd been hoping to ignore her, but it seemed it would be impossible. She pulled out her cellular phone and began fiddling with the keys. None of your business, tramp. I came back and continued walking. Well, you need to learn some respect, one of the others said. I can't remember if it was Gabriella, the fat one, or Anastasia, the one with bad teeth. I ignored her and kept moving. Suddenly, I felt incredibly weak, as if the blood had all rushed out of my head. I lost my balance and fell on the ground. I think I may have been briefly unconscious, but I'm not sure. When I came to, I saw Kaylee staring at me with her ugly friends. Dumbass doesn't even know how to keep his phone on. Thanks for the time, douchebag. 
I sat up. They were really getting on my nerves. Like I would give sluts like you the time of day. What the hell did you do? What did you do to my phone? Oh, you'll find out soon enough, or maybe you won't. If I were you, I'd keep it on, though. Not like it matters. You don't stand a chance in hell anyway. Kelly smirked at me and sauntered off with her flunkies. I didn't know what she was on about, and I ignored her. Later that night after I got home, I turned my phone back on and started trying to figure it out. I couldn't get the new application to go away, but going through it, I checked the various links. Again, the first one displayed the map. I found I could zoom in and out. I saw my position in my bedroom in my house when I zoomed all the way in. The map was detailed enough to have the floor plan. When I zoomed out, I saw, in other parts of the city, that there were other beacons on the map. After the day's events, just to be on the safe side, I decided I would check some of them out the following day. This time I also checked the other three hyperlinks on the app's home menu. The second one brought up a list of other links, but these were all grayed out. The third one led me to another screen that was all gibberish, more incomprehensible symbols floating across the screen. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. The fourth link on the menu was completely grayed out and I couldn't access it at all. I left my phone charging and went to bed and slept. Throughout the night, I had more brief visual and auditory hallucinations, and my sleep was full of nightmares I can no longer remember. School the next day was more of the same. Kaylee wasn't even in class. On the way home, I decided to investigate one of the beacons on the map. It was a glowing blue icon in an apartment complex near my family's house. At this time, I still lived with my father and mother. When I arrived at the apartment, I found the blinds were closed and the inside was dark. Having resolved that I did not walk out of my way for nothing, I knocked on the door. There was no answer. I tried again more forcefully. And again. Finally, I was about to leave when I started hearing a series of deadbolts unlocking from the inside. A stout, heavy-set man with spiked hair who looked about twenty answered the door, leaving the chain lock in place. What do you want? he asked. I was hoping you could tell me something about this. I held up my cell phone and showed him the map, pointing to his apartment. His eyes narrowed. Did you send the message to anyone else yet? A message? I don't know what you're talking about. The phone only just started acting up yesterday. I think it started because of a new girl at my school. It's been happening ever since she sent me a text at around 1 a.m. a few nights ago. Is that what you mean by message? If so, then no, I haven't sent it out. He paused a moment and looked at me thoughtfully as if he were trying to decide if he believed me. At length, he closed the door, undid the chain, and opened it up to let me inside. He bolted the door behind me. I felt a bit nervous, wondering if I had stumbled into a trap at first, but then he began to speak. You're going to rue the day you got that message for the rest of your life, however long or short it may be. We talked for a few hours that day. His name was Starlove, and he explained to me that I had been brought into a game from which there is no escape. He told me that in a few days I'd be dead unless I found an object which could protect me. An object. 
You mean like a charm or something? Like the Chinese exorcists wear on their hats? Not exactly, he said. He told me the item could be anything, but whatever it was, it would cause me terrible anguish. He told me about his. He patted his knee. I always loved basketball, you know. I had high hopes. I was the best once. And mess. It was this or die. He had a knee replacement, an older, primitive model, which caused him great pain when the weather was bad, or sometimes for no reason at all. His hopes of being a basketball player were smashed, and he was left, in his words, an alcoholic schmuck. He told me if I didn't find the thing I needed, I'd be dead in two weeks. At this point, I decided the whole thing sounded crazy. I rebuked him and said he must not know what he's talking about. I don't know what they are or where they come from. Seeing glimpses of them, I still do, out of the corner of my eye. I can tell by the look on your face you've seen them too. The hallucinations, I started. He interrupted. They're not hallucinations, I can assure you. They're quite real, and they will find you, and they will take away you unless you take what I'm saying seriously. He went over a lot of the details with me in the dark chain of murder in which I was now shackled. He told me about a rule that stated if I sent someone else the message, I would get an extension of time, but this person would also be roped in, and that this is what Kaylee had done to me, and how each time you did this, you brought yourself only half as much time as the time before, so eventually it got to the point where you brought yourself almost no time at all. He also told me that I had to keep my phone on at all times and make sure that I had reception or else I'd be weak and defenseless to the other players. This reminded me of Kaylee and my confrontation with her. There's something else, I said. Kaylee, the other day, on the way home from school, when my phone was off, she did something to me. I felt like I was losing energy. She said something like, thanks for the first time, and then laughed. Starlov's face became very serious. It's not good at all. She must be a time thief. Time thief. Starlov explained that everyone in the game had an ability which could help them in some way or another, and that players were vulnerable to this when their phones were off, or if they had no cellular reception. Evidently, Kaylee had taken advantage of her ability, which he called time thief, to steal some of my remaining days for herself. He reasoned that instead of two weeks, I now probably only had about nine days left. If she's doing that, it means she hasn't found the thing she needs yet, and that's why she's cursing people. This isn't good. Have you tried your own ability yet? My own? No, I haven't. How do I do that? He took me back to the second option on the main screen the one where before I had only seen grayed-out links of indecipherable text. He scrolled down the list until he found one that was blue. Instead of gibberish, it was a symbol that looked like an eye. You're pretty lucky. Give it a try. I selected the link and pushed enter. Suddenly, my phone vanished. So did my hands. I looked down at myself and I found that I wasn't there. Only two indentations in the shape of my feet were in the carpet beneath me. I was shocked. I fumbled the phone and dropped it in surprise. 
I became visible again, and so did the phone. You can use that whenever you like, but be careful. The stealth function is hell on the battery life. All at once, I was excited, amazed, and terrified. This was technology I had never seen or heard of before. Or maybe it was magic. But whatever it was, as the reality of the ability set in, I was forced to accept that everything else Starlove told me must have also been true. I had no doubts now that I was really in some kind of perverse game of electronic tag with unimaginable consequences. All right, I said. How do I find the object that can protect me? He paused a moment. Took a deep breath. I suspect in the coming days it will come to you. If you truly want to live, you must mentally prepare yourself to accept it, whatever it is. You'll know it precisely because you won't want to know it. Most of the time, players such as Kaylee refuse their item and resolve to find time another way using the game. I thanked him for his time, and he showed me out. As I was leaving, I asked him about the other two options on the phone's home screen. He told me that he hadn't been able to make anything of them either, but that we could try to figure it out another time, if and when such a time came that I managed to assume my protection. The next few days at school were torture for me. I kept my eyes open and looked around for anything like clues, anything that might be my item. I had heard Kaylee and her friends had gotten into a big fight over something, but from what I saw, Gabriella and Anastasia were actually being exceptionally nice to her. They were catering to her every whim like she was some kind of princess, and they were her handmaidens. They looked terrified of her. My shield came to me on the seventh day. I was walking home on a path that followed the canal when I was approached suddenly by a rough-looking girl with a shaved head. She was wearing black leather and had a black eye. Some of her clothes looked torn, and she had a distant look on her face. They... they raped me. They raped me. She half-whispered, half-wept. She was holding her cell phone in her hand. What? Who raped you? What happened? I asked her. She grabbed at my shirt and dropped her cell phone. I could see the game's area map application was open on it. I can't take it anymore. I can't do it anymore. Here, you can have it. I quit. I quit. She shoved something into my breast pocket, then backed away toward the reservoir. She looked me in the eyes with tears streaming down her face. Then, before I could even begin to think of stopping her, she pulled a handgun out of her waistband, shoved it into her mouth, and pulled the trigger. Her brains and bits of skull erupted out of the back of her head, and she fell backwards into the canal. I rushed to the water's edge and looked down at her body as the water passed over it, turning red. I reached in my breast pocket and pulled out what she had given me. It was a red Nazi armband. I cursed and stuffed it into my bag. I called the police and reported the woman's suicide. They took my statement, but I left out the bit about the armband and did not show it to them. When I got home that night, I put on the armband over my pajamas while I slept. I slept soundly and had no hallucinations. The next days at school were problematic. 
I found that I could wear my armband beneath my jacket and no one would see it, and that seemed to work fine. However, I had to change for gym class each day. I tried to hide it and changed in a corner, but given that it was bright red, it was inevitable that someone saw it. The first day, I managed to laugh it off and say it was a joke, a novelty item. But day after day, when they saw me wearing it all week, eventually the other students began to spread rumors. One day at lunch, I was approached by a group of three students who were Mexican. They held me and tore off my jacket. Everyone could see the swastika emblazoned on my shoulder. They cursed me and beat me severely that day. The school counselor forced me to come in for a chat, which I tried, and failed to explain that I simply needed to wear it. After that, I was very careful and managed to avoid expulsion by making sure none of the teachers could see the armband. Even if they knew it was beneath my clothes, I had plausible deniability on my side, and they weren't allowed to strip me to see if it was there. This dealt with the problem of the teachers, but the other students were another matter. They all knew it was there, and this was enough for them. As you may already know from John's side of events, they also began to call me by a butchered version of my last name. My own family started giving me trouble, too, afraid I had fallen in with a gang of skinheads. Kaylee seemed to be enjoying my suffering, although it did seem to bother her that I hadn't vanished at the end of the two weeks as she had expected. She went out of her way to make life hell for me, after that calling me out in public about the Nazi armband and coining the slur that haunted me. One night after my two weeks were up, I decided I didn't want to deal with it anymore. I laid down on my bed and pulled off the armband and left it on the nightstand. The hallucinations started up again, but I decided to ignore them all with all my will. I went to sleep. About an hour later, around midnight, I was awakened by a loud noise. Something had slammed into the front door of my house. I sat up in bed, in the dark, listening. After a few seconds of silence, there was another loud bang on the door, this one louder than the first, began to shake. Then the third man came. It was like an explosion, and I heard the sound of splintering wood. The house's security alarm went off. In a panic, I reached over and grabbed the armband and slipped it back onto my bicep. I could hear my parents awake and shouting from the other room. At length, when I was reasonably sure the sound had stopped, and the only sounds were of my father swearing, left my room to see what had happened. The metal door of the house was dented inward, and it was crooked on its hinges. The decorative wooden paneling that had surrounded it was snapped and in pieces on the floor. My father turned and looked at me, standing in my pajamas with the Nazi armband on my shoulder. You! This is your fault! He swore at me. You and your neo-Nazi bull! You've got gangbangers terrorizing my house at night now, and I won't have it one more minute. This has gone too far. He threw me out of the house that night, and I was forced to get my own apartment. After that, I decided to tough it out. That, as Starloff had said, if I wanted to live, this was how it had to be. I developed a thick skin. People often accused me of starting fights later on, but I always turned the other cheek. I can honestly say I never returned a single physical attack on my person during my time in high school, save one. 
I stared at myself in the mirror and told myself again and again, I will endure this. I've never been so alone. Finally sophomore year ended, I thought maybe I'd finally get some relief in the solitude that summer promised. That ended, however, when I got a message from Starlove late one night. The text of the message simply read, People you know? Attached was a news report on the disappearance of two girls from my school. Gabriella and Anastasia were missing. I messaged him back. Yes, friends of Kaylee. I decided she had to be stopped. Not really because of any sense of justice or anything, but because I was aching for some payback anyway, and now I could be sure I had the means and the excuse. I turned on the area map and tracked down her player beacon after watching it leave her house. I wore all black, a leather jacket, and a ski mask, and approached her on the street after she was leaving a party. She was drunk. Oh, it's you. She laughed at me drunkenly. Good. I was in need of some more days. That isn't going to work. I took off my jacket and showed her the armband. Her eyes narrowed and she seemed to sober up. Give me that. She said it hatefully. No, I said. She took out her phone and fumbled with the buttons. Suddenly she dashed at me faster than my eyes could see and hit me center mass. went flying backwards across the pavement. I later understood that she had a new ability that allowed her to move at incredible speed. Fortunately for me, she was a careless slob, and the one charge was all her badly neglected and overworked cell phone battery could handle. Her phone's power went out, and she began cursing at it. I had the wind knocked at me, but I managed to pull myself together and get back on my feet. I opened my own phone and activated the stealth function. I was physically stronger than her, and being invisible only made taking care of her even easier. I struck her from behind and took her phone from her. Then I threw it on the ground and destroyed it. I pulverized it with the heel of my boot until it was a smashed mess. I took the SIM card with me. Turned off stealth and left Kaylee there, scrambling around to gather the bits of her ruined phone. A few nights later, she turned up at my apartment and swore at me. She would have attacked me, but I kept the door chained. This didn't stop her from reaching in the door and throwing herself against it, trying to break the chain. You murdering bastard! You piece of garbage! She cursed me again and again. I called the police. She broke down when she heard the sirens coming. You have to help me. There were tears in her eyes. Please, I'm almost out of time, please! She begged me, like a worm. She ran off before the police arrived. I never saw her again. She disappeared without a trace that night. MySpace pages all wore a rest in peace Kaylee banners for a while, and people remembered her fondly as the spunky girl who stood up against that one Nazi bastard who went unnamed. If you've read John's side of the story, then I don't need to go into too much detail about the events of July 5th to May of 2007. As far as I can tell, he seemed to get what little facts he had fairly correct, I will, however, try to fill in some of the holes. Jack transferred in at the end of 05, like the story states, our junior year, 
and the year was uneventful for the most part. I traded messages with Starlove a bit more from time to time and tried doing some research on the game in online forums and old legends, but finding nothing of use, I kind of just adapted to life as a hated national socialist. It wasn't easy reconciling this with my Christianity. There's a theory sociologists talk about called labeling theory, which states that if people treat you like something for long enough, you eventually will become the mask. Where once I had hated Nazis, I started studying them intensely and found a sort of fascination with them. As I sit here, typing this memoir, various artifacts from the war litter the room, and a Nazi propaganda poster stares down at me. Labeling theory or not, I could never really get away from who I really was, or wanted to be, though. I developed a sense of self-loathing for a while, and got into a lot of masochistic practices, uh, trying to punish myself or purify myself through physical pain. I practiced some self-flagellation for a bit, but I've since then moved past all of that. I've seen some speculate that maybe I was using the torture devices as a decoy for my shield, but admittedly, I never really thought about it that much. Not that smart. Since then, however, I've toyed with the idea of decoy shield in case another Stephanie ever comes along. On that note, I just want to say that Stephanie Chung was an even worse person than Kaylee. Her relationship with John was never as good as he portrays it in his version of events. They did date on and off, and he did love her, but her treatment of him was abusive at times. I sincerely doubt that they ever actually had sexual intercourse, despite what he may have said. Although, to be fair, I can't attest to the fact that the night she vanished, she did in fact threaten me with his gun when she came to my apartment, and it wouldn't have surprised me at all if she did sleep with him that night just to get her hands on it. As for why his story contained no traces of her using any of the special abilities or to the app menus, she likely hid it all from him. I'm not sure what her shield item may have been or if one ever even presented itself to her, although I do have my suspicions. Her problem may have been as simple as her not having a data plan or a cellular phone that was advanced enough. Whatever the reason may be, the only method she ever used to extend her time was the practice of sending the message out to more people. And this method quickly ran her out of time. As John noted, she did it all at once, without either of us knowing, and never interacted with her victims in the way that Kaylee did with me. So none of them ever even saw it coming. If any of them got the game app, they must have just written it off as a glitch like I did. In the end, suffice to say, she got exactly what she deserved. Nevertheless, the whole affair served as something of an eye-opener to me. I realized new dangers that the game posed to me and, frankly, the fabric of society. Starlove and I have begun devoting a great deal of our time to attempting to understand the game, if it's possible to quit it or end it, or what it means, where it came from, why it exists. On most of these fronts, we've yet to turn up anything, However, we did discover something about the third function on the app's main menu, what we had both thought of as strings of meaningless text actually has a pattern to it. 
The symbols recycle themselves over and over again, and each time that they complete a full cycle, they get smaller. It's a countdown, ticking away inexorably towards some event. As of this time, we do not have any evidence as to what that may be. Jason Rotten Rademacher Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases including premium versions of our other shows such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks again to today's sponsor, HelloFresh, for their support of this show. And don't forget, as a listener, you can receive $30 off your first week with HelloFresh. Just visit HelloFresh.com forward slash told30 and enter the promo code TOLD30, T-O-L-D-30, to let them know that Otis sent you. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook 
to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.